1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Welcome everybody, at least virtually to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, My name is John Malcolm, I'm the Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government, and I'm the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. So on April the 23rd, a divided three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit did something that no federal appellate court has ever done before. The court ruled that Detroit students at underperforming public schools have a constitutional right to a basic minimum education which the court defined as one that provides the student access to a foundational level of literacy. This case began in 2016, when students from five of the city's lowest performing public schools filed a lawsuit against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, alleging the poor conditions at these schools, poor facilities, inadequate school supplies, incompetent teachers, deprived them of a basic minimum education that other children in Michigan and in other states Receive. The students alleged that this violated their constitutional rights under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. The two-to-one decision concluded that the state, by virtue of its supervisory authority over all public education in Michigan, has a responsibility to ensure that each school it oversees at least provides access to literacy. The majority held that a right to a basic, basic minimum education It's part of our our nation's longstanding history and tradition and is essential to our concept of ordered constitutional liberty, which the majority believed qualified as a fundamental right under the Supreme Court's substantive due process analysis. The dissenting judge in this case noted that, quote, nothing in the complaint gives federal judges the power to oversee Detroit schools in the name of the United States Constitution. That document does not give federal courts a roving power to redress every social and economic ill. He advocated that solutions to economic and social ills must come from legislators and democratic pressures, not the federal courts. This opinion has now been vacated, and the issue is going to be considered shortly by all of the judges in the Sixth Circuit. Similar claims, however, are also being litigated in other courts. So just how bad are our public schools? Are courts the appropriate venue to decide how to address deficiencies in public schools? What would be the ramifications of upholding a constitutional right to a basic minimum education? And if no such right exists, what can we do to improve our public schools? We have three outstanding panelists here today to discuss these and other issues. We will first hear from my colleague, Lindsay Burke. As director of the Center for Educational Policy at the Heritage Foundation, Lindsay oversees the Foundation's research and policy on issues pertaining to preschool, K-12, and higher education reform. Lindsay has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Holland's University and a Master's degree from the University of Virginia, and a PhD in education policy from George Mason University. Her articles have appeared in numerous scholarly journals, and she's a frequent guest on radio and television shows, and she's also given lots of speeches, both here and abroad, on education reform issues. In addition to her work at Heritage, Lindsay serves as a fellow at EdChoice, the Namesake Foundation in Milton and Rose Friedman, and on the National Advisory Board of Learn for Life, a network of public charter schools serving opportunity youth. After Lindsay, we will hear from Rocco Testani. Rocco is a co-leader of the Evershed Sutherland U.S. and uh, Business and Commercial Litigation Team, and he is the leader of the firm's education sector team. A graduate of Emory University and the University of Michigan Law School, Rocco has represented state and local government officials across the nation in school finance matters, including education funding and adequacy litigation range of matters from complex business disputes to civil rights and constitutional law cases. Finally, we will hear from Professor Josh Dunn. Josh is the chairman of the Department of Political Science and director of the Center for the Study of Government and the Individual at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Josh got his undergraduate degree at Bob Jones University and his master's and PhD from the University of Virginia. He's previously taught at the College of William and Mary and was a fellow in contemporary history and public policy and American politics at the Miller Center of Public Affairs in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's written several books, including Complex Justice, The Case of Missouri vs. Jenkins, From Schoolhouse to Courthouse, The Judiciary's Role in American Education. Josh also writes a quarterly article on law and education for the journal
3: Education Next. With that, Lindsay, the floor is yours.
1: Great. Well, thank you, John, and thank you for pulling together this panel today. This is such an important topic, and I'm delighted to be able to speak for a few minutes on the education policy perspective. Government has been trying to solve this problem of unwavering socioeconomic achievement gaps for a long time. In fact, these achievement gaps, which are the equivalent of four years worth of learning between the top and bottom decile of students by family income distribution was the major rallying cry for the massive expansion and federal involvement in education that began in 1965 as part of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. When Johnson signed the elementary and secondary education act into law, which was then and remains the largest federal law overseeing K-12 education policy, he said that by passing this bill, we bridge the gap between helplessness and hope for more than 5 million educationally deprived children. That was in 1965. Those achievement gaps, the achievement gaps that remain today uh, were also a big part of the call to establish a federal Department of Education in 1980, 15 years after Johnson signed into law that original ESEA. And these gaps were at the heart of calls for national education standards when governors from nearly every state in the country gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia in 1989. These gaps were the foundation of the argument on which No Child Left Behind was built. And more recently, These gaps were used by the Obama administration to push for common core and have been highlighted by politicians from both sides of the aisle to call for increases in taxpayer spending on education. So over that time period, taxpayers have poured hundreds of billions of dollars into programs like Head Start, into literacy programs, spent literally trillions at the federal level on compensatory education. There have been Funding equalization lawsuits and officials have even tried to just mandate that outcomes improve (laughs) as if that would ever work. So if we look at the numbers, inflation adjusted K-12 education spending per student has increased 280 percent since 1960. That's real inflation adjusted dollars. Between 1992 and 2014, real spending increased 27 percent. And today, nearly one-third of all state budget expenditures go toward education. So this is not for a lack of spending. But these reading achievement gaps in particular should concern us. The average score among 17-year-old students, so high school seniors, in reading is not significantly different today than it was in 1971. Just one-third of students across the country today can read proficiently, one-third. And that is incredibly troubling, but one can be especially sympathetic to the calls emanating from places like Detroit to do something. Just six percent, six percent of eighth graders in Detroit can read proficiently. Six percent. So if we look at Detroit specifically, when you include debt service, Detroit spends more than fifteen thousand dollars, about fifteen thousand four hundred per student per year. And only 42% of that spending goes directly to instruction. That means that taxpayers are spending more than $200,000 per student in Detroit from kindergarten through graduation, 96% of whom, I'm sorry, 94% of whom are graduating without being able to read proficiently. Detroit has the worst reading outcomes of the 25 largest school districts in the country. So one sympathizes with the plaintiffs when they argue that they are not receiving a basic minimum education, a foundational level of literacy. But those looking to the courthouse to solve the problems of the schoolhouse are unlikely to be satisfied with the outcome. We are far more likely to get misguided spending increases on a near monopoly education system and continued administrative bloat than we are educational excellence. As Professor Vince Scafidi at Kennesaw State explains, in the years following Johnson's Great Society Education Programs, the number of pages of federal legislation affecting K-12 increased from 80 to 360, and the number of federal regulations increased from 92 to 1,000. We can also see that that growth in the number of administrators from 1960 to 2016 Although the student population in public schools across the country increased a modest 40%, non-teaching administrative staff increased 137%. So government intervention in education tends to increase spending at administrative bloat, focusing taxpayer dollars on inputs into the system rather than on student outcomes. So what is the solution? That 6% reading achievement rate in Detroit is a tragedy. We know from reams of scholarly literature that illiteracy dooms you to poor later life outcomes. We also know that the rigorous evidence shows that giving students access to learning environments of their choice does exactly the opposite, that school choice significantly improves reading achievement along with myriad other positive outcomes. Of the 16 randomized control trial evaluations that have been conducted to date on the impact of private school choice on student achievement ten find statistically significant positive outcomes on student academic achievement. By the way, the rigorous research also consistently finds that private school choice increases the political tolerance of children that, and that civic values tend to be enhanced through private schooling. And yet, as we have uh, seen for decades now, and in 2020, we still associate schooling with housing because the government still assigns children to schools based on their family zip code. That arrangement has not only produced significant inequalities in education, but it has left low-income children several grade levels behind their peers in reading. And again, we have spent trillions and have dozens upon dozens of federal programs that haven't corrected the issue. So cracking a gavel and issuing a dictate that students now have a right to a basic minimum education while well-intentioned perhaps will not move the needle because it relies on the same underlying broken structure of government assignment and delivery of schooling. So the bottom line is this low academic achievement in the classroom won't be solved in the courtroom. Parents need to look to their state legislatures to to provide education opportunity through school choice and not to the court. So, I will stop there and hand it over next to Rocco Testani. Thank you.
3: Uh, thank, Thank you, Lindsay, and I wanted to pick up
4: on where Lindsay left off and then talk a little bit more about some of the legal uh issues raised in the detroit case and um related cases that john mentioned at the beginning Uh, one of the great ironies of this uh, case in detroit was that the state of michigan was a defendant you you normally would think that the local school board would be the defendant as the party that was operating the schools or, or failing to operate them but ironically the state of michigan was the defendant because it had taken over the detroit schools years earlier uh for fiscal mismanagement and as Lindsay mentioned uh, Detroit uh, averaged uh, $15,000 per student compared to uh, statewide in Michigan $10,000 per student so this issue of resources and the availability of resources in Detroit uh, it was obviously not the issue driving the low performance that Lindsay just dis- discussed uh, <clears throat> nevertheless the state was a party to that and as John indicated moved to dismiss the case on the basis of the uh, Supreme Court's decision in San Antonio versus Rodriguez, the 1973 decision uh, by the Supreme Court, which, which found that uh, there is not a fundamental right to education under the federal constitution. So how is it that a panel of the Sixth uh, Circuit uh, uh, could have found otherwise? Um, and I, I think that is that is a uh, important question. Uh, in terms of the legal reasoning behind it and the legal principles that uh, were at issue in that case and in other cases uh, uh, that are pending in in mainly the state courts. Um, Interestingly, uh, the majority decision in um, the Detroit case indicated that because there was a constitutional right to a minimum education, that the case would be sent back to the trial court or experts to offer opinions about the proper definition of that right. uh, And both in terms of what educational inputs would be needed and the outputs or the outcomes that would indicate whether or not the right was being uh, realized in Detroit. So that's kind of where it was left. And then as as John Malcolm mentioned at the beginning, uh, there was a dissent by Judge Eric Murphy uh, to uh, to that decision. And he raised a number of, of really important legal principles that are at issue, uh, not only in the federal litigation of these cases, but also the state courts. And the first one had to do with uh, stare decisis, which is, you know, the, the issue had been settled uh, by the Supreme Court in 1973 in Rodriguez. So how could it have been that the Sixth Circuit would, would disregard uh, the Supreme Court's decision? Um, and that that's a really important question here. And, and Judge Murphy said, "Look, there was no real way to distinguish Rodriguez," and I sort of agree with that. Uh, that that the advocates in in the plaintiffs in that case were trying desperately to figure out ways around Rodriguez. But I do want to talk a little bit about Rodriguez, <clears throat> and in particular, um, how applicable the language from Justice Powell's decision in 1973 is even today. Um, you know, in terms of this issue about how important uh, education is, everyone agrees with that. Education is extremely important. But what Justice Powell, in, in, in addressing that argument about whether it should be a constitutional right, said this, if the importance of the interest affected determined whether the interest should be deemed a fundamental right, we would have gone far toward making this court a super legislature. And so, um, you know, the argument that that education is really important, and it is uh, that that should mean that it is a constitutional right um, is another matter. And I think Justice Powell was exactly right that the importance of something in our society does not translate it into a, a constitutional right, which of course, is embodied in the language and text of, of the Constitution rather than what we think is important. Um, and Justice Powell also hit on the question of how do you interpret the Constitution? What's the proper way to interpret a Constitution? And his argument and his holding was based on the text of the Constitution. Here's here's what he said. Education, of course, is not among the rights afforded explicit protection under our federal Constitution nor do we find any basis for saying it is implicitly so protected. So the point he was making is the Constitution addresses a number of, of, of important rights. They're laid out in the document. Education is not one of those items, and, and we're not going to get into that if it's not in the document, which is uh, you know a basic way of interpreting uh, the Constitution. Um, federalism, of course, was a very important is a very important issue driving that drove the rodriguez decision and and also Judge Murphy's dissent in the Detroit case. Um, and as Lindsay pointed out, uh, over a third of almost every state budget, uh, not to mention local community budgets uh, uh, are dedicated to public education. And what Justice Powell said about um, the federalism concerns of federal courts getting into this topic is this. He said, it's difficult to imagine a case having a greater potential impact before us in which we are urged to abrogate the systems of financing public education presently existing in virtually every state. So what Justice Powell um, was indicating there uh, is equally applicable today, except we even spend more money on public education. Uh, at the state and local level than in 1973, by far, and the sensitivity of the federal courts uh, getting involved uh, in that topic, uh, given how important a function that is locally, uh, uh, is what he was discussing in terms of the federalism concerns. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, would be um, Justice Powell's observation that these questions of educational uh, Uh, financing, educational outcomes, what is the right way to run a school system, but these involve political and policy questions that courts are not well-equipped or trained really to resolve. And here's what he said uh, on that topic. Um, In addition to matters of fiscal policy, this case also involves the most persistent and difficult questions of educational policy, another area in which this court's lack of specialized knowledge and experience counsels against premature interference with the informed judgments made at the state and local levels. Education presents a myriad of intractable economic, social, and even philosophical problems." So, you know, when I reread Justice Powell's decision from almost 50 years ago, I thought how applicable, how relevant, um, his reasoning uh, uh, was not only at the time, but but since. And, and the accuracy of his observations about the complexity of the issues about how to improve student performance, what's the best way to do it? How do we know if a system is in fact um, operating in an adequate fashion or a constitutional fashion? These are really hard questions for which there really isn't, uh, there aren't clear cut answers. And uh, having the federal courts involved in that or any court, frankly, involved in that uh, is rife with problems. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the state court action in just a minute. So in light of that language in Rodriguez, it was very surprising that the Sixth uh, Circuit, at least two of the judges on that panel, would disregard uh, the, uh, the holding of Rodriguez and find that there was a right to a basic minimum education in Detroit. Um, you know, part of that, of course, I think, is that the case was litigated on bad, you know hard facts. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said long ago that you know hard cases make bad law. And to some extent, that's exactly what we see there. Uh, difficult, low performance leading to a disregard of, of Supreme Court precedent. So in, in the days following the Supreme Court's, uh, sorry, the Sixth Circuit's decision, the governor of Michigan quickly settled the case with the plaintiffs. And as a result of that, the case became moot. Um, the Sixth Circuit um, uh, later decided that they would not hear it on banc. And um, uh, I'm sorry, they, they agreed to hear it on banc and vacated the panel decision and then found that the case was moot. So that case is done. But there's another case pending right now in rhode island called cook versus raymondo that implicates and, and raises the same issues that were present in detroit so this is not over yet and as john mentioned you know there are cases pending all over the country in the state courts based on state constitutional law that raise the very same issues um, and raise the very same concerns about separation of powers about political questions and policy questions being decided by courts And as as Josh Dunn is going to talk about here uh, now, uh, the question I think is fairly raised, how well can courts decide these issues effectively and actually be uh, effective in trying to improve public schools? So I'll turn it over to Josh
3: with that further discussion of, of the Detroit case.
0: Thank you, Rocco. And thank you, John. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation for having me on this panel. I'm honored and delighted to be here. So for my comments, I'm going to focus on judicial capacity rather than primarily the constitutional issues. And some of these were alluded to in some of Rocco's comments. So what I want to argue is that even if someone thinks that there might be a right to education somewhere in the penumbras emanating from the text of the Constitution, you might suspect that the court still wouldn't be effective at protecting that right. Now, I think the best exhibit for this argument would be a case called Missouri versus Jenkins. As John mentioned, I wrote a book on this case. This case reached the Supreme Court three times, and in it, we witnessed a federal judge, Russell Clark, mandating tax increases on those living in Kansas City uh, in order to pay for educational programs and facilities. Started off as a desegregation case, but it really turned into a school, school improvement case. So, almost all schools in the district were turned into magnet schools with special themes such as Slavic studies, performing arts, classical Greek, agribusiness, but then these programs required special facilities and instructors, so the KCMSD was lavished with, among other things, petting zoos, climate-controlled art galleries, and a model United Nations with simultaneous translation capability. One high school ended up being so finely appointed that it became known as the Taj Mahal. As well, the judge in the case, Judge Clark, increased teacher salaries, base salaries by 40%. So what happened? After more than $2 billion had been spent and the minutest details of the school district's operations had been regulated, there was no increase in integration and the academic performance of the students trapped in the district declined. And this was a difficult con- feat considering the district district's already abysmal test scores. So Missouri versus Jenkins illustrates something other than just pure judicial activism. It instead illustrates judicial incompetence that is the courts just, it turns out, aren't very good at resolving these uh, and improving uh, performance in these areas of policy. So I'm going to describe the general nature of the problem and then talk about some specific aspects of it. With these kinds of policy disputes, you have multiple parties with multiple interests, where in contrast, litigation is binary. So policy uh, disputes and problems, uh, suppose these legal disputes where you have two parties, party A this person violated a contract made with party b right there's an obvious solution there but with policy disputes there is no perfect solution because of the diffuse nature of the interests that are involved but the authority and legitimacy of the courts hinges on their ability to offer a reasoned argument and justification of their decisions so the rational decision making process of courts will likely not lead to satisfactory policy because legal reasoning cannot lead to answers for problems that are based just purely on these diffuse interests. So now let me talk about just a few reasons why courts specifically fail. First, courts have to rely on unreliable information. Judges are generalists. They often don't have any knowledge or expertise in the very specific policy areas that they might be uh, required to rule on in these cases. So instead, they have to rely on biased expert witnesses. And these expert expert witnesses oversimplify complex problems, and they make promises that really won't be fulfilled. For instance, in Missouri versus Jenkins, the educational experts in that case promised the judge that if he implemented the remedial program that they were recommending, that they would bring the school district test scores to state averages and national averages within five years. They never came close to that. Another problem with the information that they have to rely on is that they do have to rely on theoretical knowledge from these expert witnesses rather than practical knowledge. So even if you do have a good remedy, it still makes sense to actually talk to people with practical knowledge, those are frontline bureaucrats, teachers who would be responsible for actually implementing a program. But in cases like this one, you don't rely on those uh, on those people with the kind of practical knowledge. Instead, you rely on educa- uh, educational experts, often who are flown in from across the country to testify. A second problem with judicial policymaking in these kinds of cases is that it leads to un- unintended consequences. Of course, almost all policies will create unintended consequences, but the problem is pr- particularly acute for courts. So courts, you would say, have a comparative advantage in determining what happened in the past, but they have a comparative, di- comparative disadvantage at predicting the future. They don't have access to the same kind of information that legislatures have access to. And as a result, they mandate mistakes. And then once you mandate those mistakes, it's actually very difficult to walk back from them. So for instance, in the case of Missouri versus Jenkins, the judge ordered these remedies. After a few years, it became quite obvious that the remedies weren't working and that changes uh, needed to, uh, to occur but he refused to make any modifications to the remedial order. The problem is that once you've established that a particular remedy is necessary to protect a constitutional right, you have essentially constitutionalized the remedy. That is, the remedy is just as important as the right itself. A third problem that courts face is that they must proceed piecemeal. And as a result of that, they have to isolate problems that in the real world are mixed and connected. So you think about education. It's obviously a very complex area of public policy that is related to other complex areas of public policy. We all know that crime, family structure, poverty affect educational outcomes, but when addressing a case like this one out of Michigan, the court can only focus on education. As well, courts can consider opportunity cost. That is, would a dollar spent on education be better spent on some other program that could have other effects on education? Then a fourth and final problem would be that courts end up being captured by special interests. What often happens in these kinds of cases is that they're collusive, as both parties want the same outcome. Uh, Institutional reform litigation like this is rife with this kind of uh, collusion. So what happens is that courts end up being uh, a manipulated contestant in disputes where one side simply uses litigation to insulate its policy and spending preferences from political debate. And often those policy and spending preferences aren't actually in the public interest. And in the case of education, you can look to examples where these policy and spending preferences will help these help these special interests, but don't actually help the children who they are promising that they're actually going to provide a better education for. So finally, I want to say just a little bit about the general problems with uh, with reforming education. The great political scientist James Q. Wilson called education or schools coping agencies. And coping agencies are one where you can't watch the employees doing what they're supposed to do, and it's very difficult to measure the outcomes. And so because it's a coping ed- uh, agency, the people trying to reform it uh, often try to turn it into what he calls a production agency, where you can watch the people doing what they're supposed to be doing and you tra- and can measure it. But doing that often compromises the effectiveness of the organization itself the agency. And this is what you see with courts when they get involved in trying to manage schools. They try to turn them from a coping agency into a production aid, uh, agency. They try to take take things that are not very easily measurable and make them easily, easily measurable. And often what that means for courts is that they just will focus on spending. Uh, That's very easy to measure. And so then they'll congratulate themselves that they've spent more money without actually addressing the more fundamental issue, which is what are the outcomes? Are we actually achieving the things that we want uh, to achieve? So in conclusion, courts can force schools to do things, but they can't force them to do them well. And because they force them to do things, it creates the illusion that something is happening. Hearings are held, there are orders that are ordered, In the case of Missouri versus Jenkins, there were lavish facilities that were built, but these judicially created programs often amount to very little. So what we really need to think of, I would say in the words of the great legal scholar John Wooden, is that we should never mistake activity for achievement. Thank you. Turn it back over to
3: John now. Thank
2: you, Josh. Uh, I, I, I like that great legal scholar, John Wooden. Um, so touching, actually picking up on, a, on on what you were just discussing in terms of institutional capability of uh, capabilities of the courts. So in his dissenting opinion, and by the way, my apologies for for not having picked up on the fact that the case had, uh, had settled. But as uh, Rocco said, the issue is still uh, quite current and being litigated in a lot of courts. Uh, but in the Whitmer, opinion, the one that's now been vacated in his dissenting opinion, Judge Eric Murphy raised several very interesting questions. he said, and this is a quote, how should those courts remedy? Oh, one second. How should those courts remedy the schools that they conclude are not meeting the constitutionally required quality benchmarks? May they compel states to raise their taxes to generate the needed funds, or order states to give parents vouchers, something that Lindsay, for example, might like, so that they may choose different schools. How old may textbooks be before they become constitutionally uh, deficient or outdated? What minimum amount of training must teachers receive? Which HVAC systems must public schools use? So setting aside for the moment the question of separation of powers, how, what standards have been suggested for how a court might determine when a basic level of, of education has been provided? That's a jump ball for anyone who wants to answer it.
0: Well, I think that relates to, the, to my last point, that courts will try to focus on things that are easily measurable, and that tends to be dollars. Uh, but often uh, that's, not necess- that's not connected to the actual outcomes that you're, you're trying to achieve. That's just, I, I think that's just the nature of courts. After all, you're, you're looking at judges who don't have a keen interest in mangi- managing large, complex institutions. after all, they're judges, right? They manage their office, their office primarily. Uh, and so they're looking for uh, something that allows them to say, all right, I've accomplished what I'm, uh, what I'm supposed to accomplish. And so in school finance litigation in the States, they've created what are c- called costing out studies. And that's where they've allegedly determined how much money you have to spend. It turns out that all of these costing out methods have very severe problems. There's one called the professional judgment model, which is where they just ask uh, professional teachers and educators, well, how much money do you think you need to have? in order to provide a uh, good quality education. And of course, the problems with bias are quite apparent uh, with the professional judgment model. In fact, they were so severe that the person who created the professional judgment model disavowed it. Uh, Jim Guthrie was his name. Uh, And then uh, there are things like the successful schools model where you just try to average uh, how much uh, schools that everyone regards as being successful spend on education. And there's a, a basic logical incoherence at the core of the successful schools uh, model, which is that, mathematically, you have half the schools are spending less than what you're now saying is actually necessary to uh, spend to provide a quality education. Right, so they're very, they, they're, they're very serious problems, I think, with all, with all of these uh, attempts to come up with a precise number. Uh, that has to be spent on uh, spent on education so that 's why courts end up coming with these uh, these kind of short the shorthand of, of just pure pure dollars um, and then you end up engaging in a lot of goal displacement rituals and other things um, to try and satisfy the courts and you end up not actually improving the quality of education at all the instead the focus just becomes purely on the resources that are going in
2: uh, Rocco is it is it is that what plaintiffs have focused on and has it been just just spending. So I noticed in the opinion, the court, the majority opinion sort of said, well, this is almost analogous to prisoners who are being held involuntarily, uh, you know, in, in, in prisons and controlled by the states. Public school students have attendance requirements uh, and, and sort of slid into overseeing schools in that way. Are, are, are the plaintiffs
3: always focused on how much money is spent? Rock, I can't hear you. Uh, The answer to your question,
4: John, is yes. And that's what these cases are about. It's about shifting of resources, uh, in my view at least, where uh, interest groups that are not successful in the legislative process move to courts to get their preferred uh, uh, policy preferences. Uh, And so, uh, as as Josh indicated, there's this veneer of science that's introduced to say we know how to price out successful schools. Well, the answer is we don't really know how to price out successful schools. And that's the truth. But as Josh pointed out, there are lots of reasons we don't get to the truth in these cases. Uh, I would touch on one other, I think, very concerning development in these cases, um, in the state courts in particular, which is in an effort to get around the separation of powers point that's raised, and I think it's quite legitimate in these cases, the plaintiffs are saying, look, the states have set proficiency standards in their in their, um, in their you know, ESSA plans and their NCLB plans prior to that. And if kids are not at proficient levels, that's all we're saying is that the, that the schools have failed. They're not adequate. And the state set those standards. And so how is this a separation of powers problem? The legislature, the state board of education have, have done that and they're not meeting them. So there must be a constitutional violation and that's a concerning development from the standpoint of of watering down standards long term a misunderstanding of what standards represent and so on and so on so there's there's a lot to these cases that I think present real challenges to reform and and impediments to reform for lots of the reasons Josh indicated uh but but that's the threat it's it's a financial threat obviously But it's also a threat to reform efforts that may not be popular among the advocates who bring these
1: cases. Yeah, if I could just second that. So I really Yeah, 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 I I think that's exactly right. I mean, do you risk, you know, if you get a court decision, and we see spending per pupil increase significantly, do you risk blunting other more foundational and important reforms, uh, like education choice? I mean, this is something that we have long argued that it is not a matter of how much uh, we spend per pupil, right? The dollar amount, it, what matters is who controls those dollars that are spent. And so the, the risk of going off topic, this is where something like the Espinoza case comes into play, uh, where we will learn uh, very shortly, I imagine, John, what the outcome of that case uh, will be. And that has, will have major implications for education choice long-term. Right. So I
2: actually just got a question from the audience. That it, it, it's great because it happens to jive with the next question I was going to ask anyway. <laughs> so setting aside for a moment uh, the federal constitutional question, there are a lot of provisions in state constitutions actually about funding uh, uh, schools. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, why more of these cases—there have been cases, after all, filed in state court. Uh, you know, why there aren't more of these cases in state court, and do we? Do you think? Uh, that perhaps because of these state constitutional provisions, there will in the future be more of these actions
3: filed in state court, and do you see you know, what, what the prospect of those cases are? Uh, yeah, so yeah. there have
0: been many, many, many um, school finance cases, uh, and they're going to continue. This has been going on for decades. So after San Antonio versus Rodriguez, uh, School, school finance advocates uh, turned turn to state courts. And so first major one was in California. <laughs> there, uh, and then, but they, they all focused on equity uh, for, for about two decades. And that was just provide equal spending. But there was a basic problem with equity, which was that there are two ways to create equal spending. You can either bring everyone up or bring everyone down. And so uh, when these lawsuits were actually successful, they were only successful about a quarter of the time they uh most states just responded by reducing overall education spending, which was not, which was not the desired goal. So then, in 1989, you had a major case uh, out of Kentucky, which was the new model called adequacy. And so the argument instead of m- from equal protection and equal spending, the focus was on state education clauses, and so they uh, argued that state constitutions required an adequate level of of spending, and those cases have been much more successful. I haven't looked in the past. Two three years I think, but uh, about three quarters of those cases uh, were successful because it solved I think some political problems uh, for the the litigants, which was that they promised to increase spending for everyone um, because you end up getting defectors with the uh, with the equity cases, and they allegedly solved the problems of judicial competence. I don't think they I don't think they did at all. Uh, they they claim that they provided judicially manageable standards for, for judges and courts to enforce, but in reality, I don't think they did. And it all ended up defaulting back to money. Uh, I think really at the core of every a- a- adequacy case is a claim of equity.
3: Anything to add? Rocco? Lindsay? I agree with, with okay. John's observation. I mean, the, the cases are active.
4: They continue to be active across the country. and. As I mentioned, they're tr- transforming from this idea that you know there's um, uh, glomming on to the state uh, proficiency standards as the evidence of lack of, of adequacy. Uh, but you know, New Jersey's been in the soup for, uh, I don't know, 1990. Uh, there's been 20 decisions issued by the Supreme Court of New Jersey still going on. Uh, that's the other feature of these cases that once they start, they never end. And to Lindsay's point about sort of the shifting of the, polit- sort of the political power within the court structure, you know, who, whose voices are heard about education reform in New Jersey are the plaintiffs and the people who brought that case, and then whoever's defending the case, not the rest of the public. And that is one of the huge problems with these cases is that it's a very small uh, group of people who get to decide education policy and a very limited view that courts have about what considerations should be taken into account in making policy. And yet we don't see improvement emanating from these cases uh, in a way that would warrant them, even if we didn't have these constitutional separation of powers and other kinds of legal uh, problems that I think are very serious.
2: All right, I got a, uh, so bear with me, I got a, It's a long question, but a really good one from Glenn Delk of New Schools of Georgia. So thank you, Glenn, for this question. All right, so here's, here's the question. Why isn't the solution much simpler than trying to establish a constitutional right to a basic education? Rather, the question should be, does the assignment of attendance by zip codes constitute a denial of equal protection to those who cannot afford to purchase a house in the right zip code? Focusing on the latter question, keeps the courts out of the complex issues of how to run schools. Instead, the focus is where it should be, equal opportunity for all. I'm curious your reaction to that and whether such claims have been asserted in any of this litigation.
1: Well, I'll leave the legal analysis to, to the other two panelists, but I, I will say, I mean, I, I certainly believe that this is at the heart of all of the problems that we see in education and K-12 education today. The fact, as I said at the top of the hour, that we do assign students to schools based on where their family can afford to buy a home. If we were going to design the most inequitable system imaginable tomorrow, and we set out to do that, that's exactly how you would design this system. To say that where your family can afford to purchase a home is the school that you will attend. You have no choice beyond that unless you can afford to both pay your property taxes and pay for private school tuition so the people who have choice now are those who can afford to pay twice and i think that's an inherently unfair way to deliver education dollars and so so much of our work in our policy uh, world our policy work at heritage has been just trying to redefine what we mean by the very definition of public education we should mean an education available to the public but be completely agnostic about the type of school that a family chooses to obtain that education. So have those dollars be student-centered, have them be portable, and allow them to follow a child to any school of choice, public, private, or otherwise, I think that is the key to changing the game and fundamentally seeing these outcomes improve long-term. Josh, Rocco,
3: anything to add on the legal question? Well, the answer the legal answer the question
4: legal question or the answer legal question is that poverty is not a suspect classification i mean that was one of the other holdings in the rodriguez case is that um, because the argument in rodriguez was was partly that Uh, poor uh, low-income areas of texas and san antonio area were uh, you know taxing themselves at a high level but not generating the revenues that other areas of Texas were able to generate, and that was part of the argument that it was equal protection problem. Uh, But the court has long held that poverty is not a suspect classification, and therefore rational basis would be the standard of review there. That's the other holding. Uh, I I don't think we're going down a track of, uh, you know, uh, uh, further constitutional litigation from federal judges for all the reasons we've been talking about is the right track. The policy point though is is a fair one and good one about should we be organizing our schools and attendance
3: zones in the way we do. Anything to add,
0: Josh? No, uh, the same. I, I just agree on policy grounds, but I'm skeptical on constitutional grounds that you could, you could make that claim.
2: Uh, so the majority in this case said, and this is a quote, the history of public education in this country, as with many things, is inextricably tied to race. So doesn't Brown versus Board of Education and its progeny uh, sort of emphasize the fundamental importance of education uh, in our society?
3: And and if so, you know, why shouldn't the court uh, revisit the San Antonio uh, versus Rodriguez case? Um, you know, Rodriguez addressed that. I mean,
4: Justice Powell addressed that very point, And of course, that decision was rendered about 20 years after Brown and of course brown talked about you know if the state's going to offer a service you can't have separate uh school systems and that's inherently unequal that was the basis of brown no doubt education is extremely important that's why we spend so much money on it Uh, that's why we uh talk about it so much and that's why we're so focused on it the idea that it can't be important unless it's a constitutional right i think is is a fundamental misunderstanding of our constitution, but that's another question for another day. Uh, it can be important to us and it should be without it being embedded in the constitution. And, and I think that's a debate we, we should be having And because of the the structures that that imposes in terms of all the court limitations, the reasons why we, we don't wanna develop public policy through courts uh, is that we don't advance public education in that manner. Uh, so saying, what's the big deal? Why shouldn't we? It's an important thing. Sure, it is. But introducing it to the court system with the experience we've had, not only in the federal system, but in the state systems now for 25 years, I think even if there weren't you know, structural limitations in our constitution to this, there are, there are practical limitations on what the, in our experience with courts in terms of trying to improve schools.
3: Right. So, yeah, so I I'm, think. That, go ahead,
0: John. Oh, yeah. So as Rocco points out, ra- race is the issue uh, with, with education. So if you uh, show racial discrimination, then then you, you can have a have a federal claim, federal constitutional claim. And in fact, in Detroit, they did have this. Right? You had Milliken versus Bradley. Reached the Supreme Court twice. The first case it was about whether or not a metropolitan-wide remedy was constitutional. The Supreme Court said no. But then it reached the Supreme Court again, where the lower court, in response to the first Milliken decision, had implemented compensatory educational programs in some way similar to what they're calling for uh, here in this mo- in this most recent case. So, it, yes, it's, if, if race is uh, implicated, if there's racial discrimination, then absolutely. Uh, you can you can litigate that make constitutional claim. If you show it, then you you, you would want courts to try and uh, to try and do something about it. Uh, the question is, is though, once you get into these comp- educational programs and reforms beyond just trying to desegregate, the courts have significant competence. And that's where I'm just very skeptical.
2: Hmm. Would we be better off having national standards uh, in education policy rather than sort of a, a patchwork? Of, uh, of state standards?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> we would not be. And uh, this is something that has been on a well, long ongoing debate in education policy circles. Uh, I personally am still quite battle-worn from the common core wars that are still not over, by the way, uh, that we fought over the past decade or so. Um, and the reason why uh, it, it's not a good approach is because you end up pulling decision-making so far away from the individuals that get impacted by those decisions, housing standards, which drive tests and the very content and curriculum that schools across the country will teach in Washington is the very last place that we would want to make those decisions. And so we saw this in the 1990s, the Clinton administration tried to advance a set of national history standards, they ended up being Uh, very poor, they were highly politicized, they were totally unwieldy for teachers, and ultimately the Senate uh, condemned those standards by 99 votes. Uh, So we went through that process and then didn't learn from the 1990s, and we saw that effort again under the Obama administration with this carrot and stick approach to try to have the federal government incentivize states to adopt a common set of standards. Um, Those standards were also derided widely uh, by both content matter experts and policy experts, but even more importantly, parents who had to deal at the kitchen table every night with these common core math standards that were very poorly aligned. And so I think the, the fundamental issue is that there is a fundamental misalignment and power and incentives and that is something that a, a national set of standards will never rectify and so to me i may sound like a broken record but all roads lead back to choice if you're interested in high standards if you're interested in high quality education have access to those dollars that we spend right fifteen thousand dollars a year now that we're spending per pupil on students across the country and be able as a parent to select into a learning environment that reflects the type of standards that you're interested in, the type of learning that you want from your child that fulfills your child's hopes and aspirations for their future. So to me, that's the type of standardization we want, is uniform, universal choice for every family in the country.
3: So Lindsay, I just got a question that I think is tailor-made
2: for you. Uh, And the question is as follows. What is being done about the ability for a taxpayer who pays property taxes towards education to receive an equal amount to apply toward their dollar vote to use a private school?
1: Yes, so we try to do everything we can to make that a reality. And this is something I I think the education policy world is is moving in that direction and has been moving in that direction much more rapidly than uh, over the past 20 years. So the past decade has seen pretty rapid movement in favor of families being able to access those dollars. Now, in reality, what happens is we end up, when there is a choice mechanism in place, we end up seeing families have access to state per pupil funding, not the local dollars uh, that are largely funded through your property taxes. And so if you think, just to take a step back, if you look at education funding at the K-12 space, uh, about 8.5% of all education funding comes from the federal level. And then the remainder, a little over 90%, is state and locally derived. About 45, 45 on average across the country, state, local share. Of the local share, that 45%, the majority of it is local property tax derived. So if you look at a state like Arizona, Arizona is a great example of how, in my opinion, to set up an education choice option. So a family in Arizona that meets certain criteria if they're unhappy with their assigned public school they can leave that public school they get 90 percent of the state per pupil funding in the form of an education savings account so that money that would have been spent on your child in the public system goes directly into a restricted use account a bank account that you have access to Uh, and at that point you can use those dollars to pay for private school tuition online learning if you want it, special education services and therapies if your child needs it, any education-related service or product or expenditure, you can pay for that with your ESA. But again, it's 90% of the state per pupil. I mention that because that has been, uh, I don't use adequate in a legal sense, but it has been what families need to access an education that's right for their children. And so, potentially, you could see down the road that Um, A state that has a state funded school choice program that you could potentially see that local property tax uh, uh, revenue decline over time, or the need for it to decline over time, and families just using that state per pupil share. It's a long-winded answer, but for the most part, right now, education choice programs are funded through that state per pupil expenditure expenditure or are just a separate line item in a state budget um, on top of what's already spent.
2: Well, I think we're reaching the end of our, our time together. I'll, I'll offer you the opportunity for any uh, uh, concluding thoughts that you, uh, that you might have, uh, and I'm sure that our, our audience will uh, give you virtual applause. Uh, but uh, any, any, closing, any closing thoughts?
1: Well, I, I would just no. drive home the point uh, that, that I was making a second ago that we have seen a lot of momentum on choice. And I, I think much of what we've heard today is the reason why that people recognize broadly that it's not about more money, it's about who controls those dollars. And you know that has really been something that has been an academic idea and almost hypothetical for decades, right? Since Milton Friedman first proposed the idea of school vouchers in 1955. But over the past decade or so has really taken off. We have now, you know, more than half of states, 29 states in D.C. that have some form of education choice in place. Uh, We are seeing, you know, the District of Columbia has a school voucher program in place. Uh, We're seeing more and more momentum for discrete programs at the federal level that are appropriate uh, for the federal government to engage in, like education choice for military families. We're seeing momentum there. And so I think that our collective understanding of this idea that you know, public education is about publicly funding the child, but the delivery can be done in any entity, public or private, I think that that is starting to catch on and that is what we will ultimately see as the mechanism for educational improvement long-term. I would
0: just say that there's actually a good deal of consensus among scholars about the capacity of courts to reform public institutions. And that is that almost no one thinks that they really do have this capacity. Defenders of judicial policymaking don't really defend judicial policymaking anymore. Instead, when people do try to defend it, what they will say is that sometimes the courts might be the least worst branch, which hardly amounts to a defense. Uh, And so if that's what, and this, this, uh, there was a good deal of optimism back in the 70s and 80s, but today it's just very difficult to find public law scholars who actually think that the courts are any good at this. So there's Something of a disconnect between these advocates and perhaps some of the federal judges as well. For a long time, it seemed like federal judges had grown tired of people asking them to to solve these complex institutional problems. So this was a little bit of an aberration, I think, that came out of Michigan.
3: Well, John uh, Rocco, oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going
4: to
0: say uh, thank you,
4: John, for for today, and I thought these were really good observations about where we where we stand with the courts and schools. Um fifty years after Rodriguez, so
2: well, thank you everybody for uh for joining this webinar uh and I would invite you obviously to tune in to uh additional webinars that we are uh that we are now hosting in these interesting times uh and Josh Rocco Lindsay, thank you
3: very much for joining us today. thank you thank, thank you. you.